Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by MUBI, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Bill Graham. Ooh, 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 ooh. And taking the place of Michael Snydell, we have my arch nemesis, Dan Mecca. Hello, how are you? I am good. How are you? I'm good. The arch nemesis thing, I just, I love that it still persists. It's, I mean, it's true for the most part. I mean, how many <laughs> times have we agreed on a movie when you've been on? I guess that's a good point. I do feel like we agree on more than we let on, though. I feel like you're never here for that, though. <laughs> right, that's true. But I guess my point is, like, <laughs> general, you know, uh, you know, on a macro level, our tastes do converge more than the public probably is aware. Yes. Yes. Us being a uh, like a constantly battling force is probably fake news, but it makes for good radio. So yeah, like slightly fake news, <laughs> sort of like, you know, a, a fisherman's tale type of fake news. Yeah. Like print the legend. You know what I mean? Like, Precisely. Yeah. 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 I have no idea what the fuck is going on right now. That's fine. Me and Brian are just going to talk for an hour, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Bill's going to uh, be in the background just here, like yeah. every now and then just like, woo, woo, yeah. yeah Bill could be like a rotating hype man throughout. <laughs> Bill is the Greek chorus. Oh, snap. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's weird. I introduced you as my arch nemesis, and I actually don't know how you feel about this particular movie in relation to how I feel about it. Um, so I guess we'll find out. We are, of course, today reviewing Bad Times at the El Royale, the newest film from writer-director Drew Goddard. It stars Synthony Erivo, Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, amongst many other great actors. Before we get into that, though, the usual Fucking housekeeping. Fucking box office mojo is down. Damn it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just cancel the podcast. How are oh. we supposed to? <laughs> now, now it's back up. That was fucking weird. Okay. That sorry. is weird. All right. So, yes. What was I going to say? Um, before we get into that, the usual stuff, find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show. On Facebook, search for The Film Stage Show. You can write us an email, podcast at thefilmstage.com. And, of course, we always love getting comments and ratings on iTunes. It helps people find us and helps us to boost our profile. In addition, you can talk to all of us on slack by becoming a patron of this show all you got to do is go to patreon.com slash the film stage show and you will be brought into the fold uh you also get a chance for some awesome raffles and stuff that we do so make sure to check that shit out go there give us as little as one dollar an episode and you will become a patron and able to speak with us live on slack in addition you can help us out by visiting our sponsor, which is Mubi, the streaming cinema online that is carefully curated for your pleasure. Every day they introduce a new film, and you have 30 days to watch. That means that at any given point, there are 30 films rotating through that you can get a chance to check out. It's October. There's some great stuff on there. Here's an interesting one. George Romero 
famous zombie auteur, has Season of the Witch, his 1972 film on there. Oh, I thought you were laughing. You're just no, coughing. Sorry. <laughs> Quick thing about George Romero, Pittsburgh's own, that's where I currently live with my lovely wife. So representing Pittsburgh, George Romero, much respect. All right. Taking Amanda Waltz's place as the person representing Pittsburgh. Yeah. Climbing out of the depths of that hellhole. <laughs> watch it, Bill. Glad to see you all there. finally got a high-speed internet. <laughs> I'm actually currently in New York recording. Oh, I, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> you left your wife alone in Pittsburgh? Jesus. I came all the way to New York just to record this podcast, as far as you know. That would, that would be great. Uh, we're not located in New York, unlike most podcasts, but yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all the effort. Anyway, if you would like a free 30-day trial of Mubi, all you got to do is go to mubi.com slash filmstage, and you will get a full 30 days on us. So once again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And that is that. We last were in your ears talking about First Man. Things got crazy contentious between Michael Snydell and I for a little bit. And now, here we are, talking bad times at the El Royale. Again, the newest film from writer-director Drew Goddard, who is all over the place, but is uh, maybe best known for being the writer and director of Cabin in the Woods, which is, if you'll recall, the first movie that was ever reviewed on this year podcast. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. And oh. can I also say that this is, as we are recording, the 10th year anniversary of the film stage. Oh, the, the website. Wow. The, the web- day. The website. Yeah, this 10 years ago in... <laughs> what in, a time in, to get our, our Twitter back. Yeah. <laughs> ten, ten year, Jordan posted on Twitter, uh, along with getting the Twitter back, 10 years ago, today in Buffalo, me and Jordan started uh, the film stage. That's awesome. October yeah. 17th. May it live in infamy and in also for me. <laughs> I, I was, my birthday was yesterday, so now this is going to be easy to me for me to remember every single year. All right, Bill, just stealing the spotlight. <laughs> I have like a Bill. super dark anniversary for tomorrow, but I won't bring that up because uh, we have a super dark movie to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else has Drew Goddard work on? He wrote Cloverfield. Uh, he's previously worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Alias, Lost, and um, he works, I believe, as an executive producer on The Good Place. Yes. yes. He is, directed the pilot, and then he also uh, wrote the screenplay for The Martian. Yeah. So he's yeah. all over the place. He's an, he's a, he's an Abrams boy. He mm-hmm. is indeed an Abrams boy, yes. He's from the J.J. world. <laughs> from the world of J.J. Um the Good Place, which is now back on NBC Thursday nights. It is a great show. Check it out. But we're not here to talk about The Good Place. No, no. We are here to talk about bad times at the El Royale. Here is the, bad place. the trailer. The bad, the bad place. First time at the El Royale? You have the option to stay in either California or Nevada. I always want to stay in the honeymoon suite, even though I'm not currently on my honeymoon. <laughs> what are you doing out here? I got a job singing in Reno tomorrow. Don't pay nothing, but uh, singing, singing. <laughs> this is not a place for a priest, Father. You shouldn't be here. 
All right, that is the trailer for Bad Times at the El Royale. This is one of those movies that I feel like the less you know about it going in, the better. So if you were here just to find out our basic recommendations, I want to get that out of the way. So, yes or no, should people go see this movie? Bill Graham. Man. Um, <laughs> ah, damn it. I, I don't know. Yeah, probably. But just go in with lowered expectations, I guess. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah. with lowered expectations. Dan Mecca. Yeah. yeah, I would say yes. I would say, you know, yes. All right. Uh, I emphatically say yes. All right. Cool. All right. Yeah. Hey, we agree. Look at that. Look at that. Guys, mark it down. Ten year anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> the tides Brian, are changing. Brian and Dan agreeing. I'm sure we'll we'll come to some uh, form of disagreement as we keep talking. We'll just like vehemently disagree on like what the actual value or meaning behind this movie is. I look forward to it. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So Bad Times at the El Royale. This is a movie about a series of strangers who are brought to a kind of once palatial and wonderful, now pretty rundown hotel that is on the border between California and Nevada. And all the uh, the hijinks and shenanigans that ensue once secrets start coming out and motivations are revealed. It stars just goddamn everyone. <laughs> it's um, that. But it's not that many people, right? It's literally seven. I mean, it's seven people. Yeah. Yeah. But like almost all of them, you would definitely recognize. Yeah. And you've you got are some a movie watcher of any any ilk. Yeah. And you've got some like random other people who are like in the side, the, the, to the sides of the story. So like sure. we got Cynthia Erivo. We got Jeff Bridges, Dakota Johnson, John Hamm. We got uh, Chris Hemsworth. We got Lewis Pullman, son of Bill. And then uh, we've also got Nick not Offerman. Mine. What was that? I said not mine. No. Just just wanted to be clear. You said <laughs> son of Bill, so. Son of Bill just, Pullman. Yes. Not Bill Graham. Yes. Uh, Xavier Dolan. Uh, and, of course, film stage legend Shea Wiggum. I didn't oh, know wait. Dolan was in this. Xavier yeah. Dolan is, is the um, record agent. Yeah. Music agent. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Buddy Sunday. Good old okay. buddy Sunday. And Shea Wiggum and, shows and, up as a doctor. And, and did we notice uh, that Nick Offerman was in this film as well? Yeah. Yeah. First scene, baby. Yes, indeed. All right. So let's uh, see what we, we – we're apparently all slightly positive, at least enough to tell people to go see it. So let's see what we thought in a, a more broad sense. Here's our nutshell thoughts on Bad Times of the El Royale. Bill Graham. Oh shit! Okay. Um, <laughs> Can I just say I love? There's a motif at the Film Stage podcast, uh, the Film Stage Show podcast, and it is that Brian asks Bill for his opinion, and Bill acts like he wasn't expecting <laughs> Brian. No, that's him. usually that's usually, and it's such a uh, highlight for me when I listen. It's usually Michael that does that. I'm I'm usually. I don't know, Bill. I, I feel know. Bill like you are constantly shocked when I ask your opinion. Even that—that <laughs> okay. that is the expressed purpose of this podcast. No, I. Uh, the reason I was shocked that you were starting off with me is because I was the uh, the the least uh, 
boastful uh, or like, enthusiastic yeah about this film and so you went straight to me to start off with opinions and i was like oh okay i guess we'll start here um no you know i enjoyed this film for really the setup i i really dig the setup i particularly enjoy the execution of it i love this hotel i love the mythology that's kind of built up around it i love the selling point of it I love that this film gathers these characters in a smart and kind of aggressive manner where everybody's kind of on their toes because they don't really know what's going on in this hotel. Uh, it's not really a spoiler, but basically there's one person kind of running the show. And for at least the first like 15 minutes that they seem to be there – of of screen time we don't have anyone actually running it and so it's it's kind of like a ghost town in a way and it's it's got this kind of haunting feel to it and i appreciated that kind of setup and and that way we get to see the characters interact in a in a way that feels naturalistic it doesn't feel forced they're just waiting and they're like well shit might as well talk to each other right um so really that's where the peak of the film for me happens from there it slowly starts to ratchet down uh inch by inch as the movie kind of goes along it is two hours and 21 minutes um that is is gonna make a problem for you yeah a contractual obligation that i have to mention that any any film that's over two hours um i feel like it just completely runs out of steam by the end uh there are some lost things that I would say happen. And anytime when you say lost, do you mean the television show lost? Yes. Okay. Uh, sorry. If, if that wasn't clear, um, there are some TV show things that have been kind of borrowed from lost in the way that this film delves out backstory of characters. And, by the time the last one hits, I I almost just threw up my hands in in the theater and was just like, "What? Oh, really? That's crazy." So, the la- okay, not to not to like you know tip my hand or anything. We're obviously we're not in spoilers yet, but the last one is the best. It doesn't matter that it's the best. It oh. matters when it happens. Oh no! That's okay, it. we're gonna we're gonna get into that because that might be one of my favorite moments in cinema this year. <laughs> um. So. All that being said, I think this film just barrels out of the gate and then just kind of crawls to to a conclusion. Um, they they have too many characters in this film and give too many backstories where some of that stuff could really be shaved off or just shaved down. Um, but overall, I, I still enjoyed myself. Um, look. You know, when you got John Hamm and Jeff Bridges and Chris Hemsworth and Dakota Johnson just just ripping up the the scenery, and you know, uh, Cynthia Revo is a newcomer, relative newcomer, I believe. She's really kind of jumped onto the scene with this and the upcoming Widows. Can't wait! And so, you know, she's definitely a screen presence that I look forward to seeing down the line. But man, you you have these actors just giving it their all to these crazy characters that they're playing and for the most part it's a lot of fun um but yeah it it whimpers towards the finish for me all right dan mecca yeah i mean i 
tend to agree with most of what Bill said. I think I'll use this intro as an opportunity to shamelessly plug the other film stage podcast that I'm currently running the B side. I was literally just recording a new episode of that, uh, for the Halloween, uh, upcoming Halloween, uh, movie uh we talked about jamie lee curtis me and my producer friend Teresa, and we were talking about bad times and she said something i totally agree with which is it's mostly a very enjoyable time and when it becomes available on airplanes it is a perfect movie in that way of you know digestibility right it's i think it's a very i mean it's obviously hyper violent and whatnot so you might have to you know hug the screen if you don't want, you know, other people <laughs> you're flying with to be, you know, whatever, awkward or something. But just as an entertainment device, I do think it's a great point. Uh, I agree with Bill in that at some point it becomes very long in the tooth. We can kind of get deeper into where that exactly happens um, as we get into spoilers. But for the most part, I do think it achieves what it sets out to do while also perhaps not being as lofty as its ambitions suggests that it is. I think Drew Goddard is making something and, and exploring elements of culture in the 50s and 60s and Americana that he thinks it feels a little bit more important um, in its regard while the movie's playing than I feel like you take away from the movie, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that was something I was wrestling with while watching it. But that all of that being said, I, I really did enjoy it. I think Drew Goddard's a very talented writer. He's a very talented director. He picked the right people to be in the movie, which is so huge. I agree with Bill. The hotel, the design of the hotel is very lovely and memorable. And um, yeah, there's a couple of things we can nitpick about um, the length, obviously, being one of them. Uh, I think in Slack earlier we were talking. We re referenced Vince Mancini of Film Drunk wrote an article about the length of movies. I, I think this movie is a good springboard of of movies being too long, which I do agree with. We can maybe talk about that later, but um, not to take Bill's you know not to take Bill's spot here, but we can <laughs> talk about that later. But uh, yeah, in general, I, I really did enjoy it, and uh, yeah, I would recommend it. Yeah, I um. I had a grand time with this movie. Uh, I, I made a mistake. <laughs> um, I wanted to see this movie this weekend. It was Friday night. And I was like, I wanted to go see a friend of mine. And I said, you know, I was going to see Bad Times at like 7. I'll just go to my friend's house. I'll pick a later showing. The only later showing was at 1030. And I was like, oh, Ooh, oh man, like, uh, that means it's not going to really start till 11. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I should do this. But then I said, fuck it. I'll do it anyway. And I was concerned because I was like, that's a long ass movie. Like if it, if it doesn't really hit with me, I'm worried that I may like feel the time and I'll want to check out. Instead, I was completely on board for this movie from moment one, all the way through to the end. It's just, it's just delightful. It's, um, I don't know. This movie has a rhythm and a feel to it and the actors are hitting and everyone is like, having the same kind of time like there's not a, a performance that really sticks out as like well that guy clearly thought he was in a different movie like the world is so fully realized and just the the way that the movie 
introduces everything from the opening scene of a man like deconstructing a uh, a hotel room to hide something to like a a I was going to say wordless but there's technically a person th- singing the entire time scene where you know a character kind of discovers the nature of this hotel and the way that the sound design does that and the way that like a character singing tells you so much about like her frame of mind and then just like the thing that I should have been worried about was the fact that like every music cue in this movie was going to make me want to sing along with it mm. like I wish that the theater hadn't been half full weird for 1030 on a Friday night because um, I would have I would have just I would have belted out some tunes this movie has a great soundtrack and it doesn't ignore its own soundtrack like people talk about the music in this movie as it's happening and just like it goes some really dark places and i feel like it's to the film's credit that like i was legitimately upset at some of the turns that the story took but i didn't feel like alienated from the movie or removed from it despite how firmly upsetting that shit was so yeah, I just like I had a great time with this. And then of course like I get out and start looking at reviews and I see that some people are like, "Oh, it's too long. Oh, the final couple twists are bad. Like I don't like it." But I just like I was just so on board the whole damn time that to me I was like, "How could you not love this movie? Like it's so good." And like like I said, you know, with Bill and his like the final twist thing, like I I was sort of like I don't know cuz I think that if it hadn't been done correctly, it could have been kind of like annoying to to find out something about someone so late in the movie. But it just like really catalyzed every question that I'd had about that character previously in a way that just made like the, the, the finale all the more like just great and satisfying for me. And so from production design to acting to writing to to everything aesthetics you know this is this just this is a movie that hit for me in all cylinders and like there's a weird part of my brain that like as i've lived with this movie for a couple days is like you think that's gonna be on your top 10 and i was like wow that's a crazy idea but honestly i have disliked so many movies this year that it's possible it's super possible (laughs) brian to your point about the music you know and the sound in general i think uh Something that Drew Goddard does that is very smart is he really leans on uh, Cynthia Erivo and her beautiful voice and mm-hmm. her Broadway background, her theater background, and you know her being you know basically this kind of down and out singer, you know coming to this once great now run down uh, El Royale Hotel for some shitty singing gig in Reno. Her voice basically is a almost a bookmark throughout the movie that um, is lovely. And I I, I was worried when watching it that it was going to jump a shark of some sort, you know, and um, that never happens. And I and I it it really in the moments when the movie gets a little slow, her voice carries you through. Mm hmm. I, I do want to mention a little behind the scenes stuff. Uh, apparently, while filming this, she does uh, obviously sing at multiple points in the film, and he had to tell her to actually not be as good as she like <laughs> normally is because he was just like nobody's going to believe that you actually sung. Like they're just going to believe that we 
overdubbed you or something. Also, just so like part of to, her her character is like you're you're not sure of yourself, you know, like yeah, yeah. When they have her singing during the the scene wherein like the secrets of the hotel are first being explored, like it's an interesting choice to have her like stop herself, correct herself, and then like sing the same line again mm-hmm. and like sort of start the song over. So, uh. One thing I want to touch on uh, briefly, because I know Mecca uh, mentioned it in the Slack, and and I thought it was an interesting point. Um, And there's a point of contention on how much you enjoy Cabin in the Woods for what it's trying to do. And if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, sorry, but uh, we're going to delve into that just a tad. 314 Um, episodes ago. Get listening. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's the... Cabin in the Woods is supposed to be a smart, brainy film that I think gets a little bit more credit than is kind of deserved. But I think it's still a a intelligent breakdown of of what it's trying to be and still also manages, for me at least, to be a scary movie that also is poking fun at scary movies, that is also a highly entertaining kind of high concept film about mythology and and our world and things like that and how all of these things kind of play into each other and this film i thought because of the fact that it is goddard behind it i thought it was going to reach for something along those same lines and it doesn't and i was really surprised by that because i felt like this this hotel has such an interesting setup and so much of this, the advertising campaign has kind of been built around like the mystery. And it's like, actually there's not a lot of mystery. It's just like watching these people just bounce off each other is just really entertaining. And that's pretty much it. Like, I don't know if you want to kind of jump in here, Mecca. Yeah, no, I mean, we were talking ahead of this podcast about, you know, what movie, you know, Drew, Drew Goddard's directorial debut, feature directorial debut was Cabin in the Woods, which was shelled for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, while, what was it, MGM, was it? They were going through, you know, Yeah, it was the same thing as, as the reason that the Hobbit films got pushed back. and, and Right, like Red like Dawn and a couple other movies. So anyway, that movie came out in 2012. I think it did okay. It's definitely earned a cult status of some sort in the years um, past and since. And it's very metatextual. It's very, you know, uh, self-effacing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you know, critical of its own genre and what have you. And I do think to, to your point, Bill, when you when you watch the trailer for Bad Times, you're thinking to yourself, oh, this feels like that. But for, you know, the noir genre, the thriller genre, Mm -hmm. you know, hippie culture, whatever. Right. And then, yeah, the movie kind of isn't really that. It's a little bit more straightforward, I suppose, than you maybe are expecting. And I enjoyed that to a to a significant degree. And though I do enjoy The Cabin in the Woods, I think when push comes to shove, um, as time goes on, I will regard bad times a little bit higher and a little bit more, you know, more steam than uh, the cabin in the woods. Cause I just think for whatever it's worth, the story being told is its own story here. And when you get into that meta world, uh, if you're overly direct as in the cabin in the woods, it can, it can, 
age a little poorly. And I do feel like with Cabin, that's kind of a little bit how I feel, though I do very much enjoy it. And so here I think he he matures. I feel like you're watching him mature as a filmmaker, you know, which is good. A lot of a lot of filmmakers fall into a sophomore slump when they make their second movie. That's kind of a, you know, a a semi-common thing. So it's nice to see him branching out. And and even like visually, right to your point, there's a scene early on in the movie uh, where you're you're with a character and he's discovering things about the hotel. And it's so beautifully crafted. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know that there's anything really visually quite like that in the cabin in the woods, you know? Yeah. My whole thing is um, I love the cabin. Is it the cabin in the woods or just cabin in the woods? It's the cabin. As we all know. I have a terrible time with definite articles. So yeah, uh, The Cabin in the Woods, a uh, movie I really enjoyed. Uh, go listen to our first ever episode to learn about more. Um, I think that I w- when I heard about this movie and heard it was from him, I had almost a concern that it would have the same type of overly meta representation of like storytelling as this Cabin in the Woods. And I was concerned about that because... Just as like, you know, he's written a bunch of other stuff, but as writer and director, like as a person putting out a movie that is like purely his, um, just from like every authorial level, I I was worried that he was going to do it again. And it was going to be another thing of like pulling back the curtain on a genre by like blaming it on something and where somehow the audience again, and the movie has aspects of that, um, you know, there is like a film camera involved. Uh, there is, you know, questions of like, how badly do you want to know? Like a secret, obviously like double-sided mirrors or like single-sided mirrors, like, you know, things like that. There's an obvious like voyeuristic audience quality to this movie, but sure. you know, <clears throat> the fact that it doesn't go crazy supernatural or anything and stays more grounded, you know, I loved Cabin in the Woods. It was like a laugh a minute thrill ride. I just like, it was so, I don't know. It's exactly what you want a movie like it to be. And I've seen it since then and I've enjoyed it every time. But yeah, I just, I was like, I was almost concerned that this movie was going to go there. And so when the credits rolled and like, it really had just been more of a kind of, you know, Bill, you called it like lost, but also it's a little bit um good place, you know, in the way that like, it'll give you a character's backstory and for the most part, you know, every backstory helps to like inform a character in a more sympathetic way, Uh which I think is a really interesting route to take. Like all these people show up and they have a sort of like shadiness to them, but then it's almost like the opposite of how these movies usually go. Cause like, in a usual movie, it's like a guy who shows up looking like, you know, a doctor or something is actually a serial killer. And in this, it's like even the people who show up seeming as though they're like a serial bad or, killer. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone who really comes off like probably a serial killer turns out to just be like a devoted father who works for the FBI or like, you know, a, a, a robber with a heart of gold or some other stuff. Like it, it's the worst situations end up showing just like the wounded nature of like an inherently good person except for one person clearly (laughs) god damn i wish i liked this movie more (laughs) (laughs) everything everything just lines up so well for me and look like i don't i think i mentioned it before on this podcast but like jeff bridges is like 
my number one actor, period. Yeah, Yeah. I love him. So the fact that he's also apparently – I've seen this comment. I don't notice accents. Accents just bounce off of me like like – like rubber i for some reason i just never noticed them but apparently someone was mentioning that he finally lost his uh true grit or was it true grit or was it a uh, crazy heart either one uh he finally lost his like garbled like accent that he's been carrying around since those two films and so they were like oh thanks he finally speaks like a normal human now <laughs> yeah he like, even oh. still had a bit of like the garbling in um the little prince Mm-hmm. Which is weird because I was watching that movie with my daughter, and I was like, "Man, he is still just mouthful of marbles." <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny. The whole Jeff Bridges and his garbled voice thing, I feel like, is an overly critical thing. I was thinking about this while watching Bad Times. Funnily enough, where it reminds me of the Al Pacino thing, right? There's this whole cultural thing, like, well, after Sin of a Woman, he just yelled forever and ever and ever, and it's like <laughs> that's just not true, right? Wait I mean, a second. It's, it's not true. Oh. It's just one of those weird actor things. I get why it becomes a cultural touch point. Like, I think you like you just know, notice it more in all. Honesty. Yeah, you notice it more, but like you know, Bridges. Uh, you know, he gives I mean, he, he's given some quiet performances since then. Well, uh, like even, you know, even The Little Prince is a quiet performance, but it just like there's still like a a kind of fumbly vocal quality. But I think it's like also just that he's in that age where like people are like, can you play like a real old dude? <laughs> and he's yeah, just like, well, right. one of the ways to do that is to speak a little softer and like maybe, you know, just a little a little mumble or I guess my point is like only the brave, right? Underrated movie from i think last year he gives this like very lovely little supporting performance so you know and that's kind of i guess that's what i mean it's funny it's funny how it like sticks with an actor i always wondered if you're an actor like that that must be so aggravating you must feel like you're doing things differently because you know what you're doing differently because you're putting on this performance and then you know the public writ large is like Oh, it's just he's doing his, uh, you know, doing the dude again. He's doing, you know, uh, uh, True Grit again. I always think it's interesting. I, mm-hmm. So I, I like it, giving it, it, these actors the benefit of the doubt, I suppose. Sure. It, it may be part of that is just simply those two films were kind of touchstones for him. And Only right. the Brave was not so much. And yeah, so, no, you know, m- more more people have seen certain films from him. And so they think – Oh, he's just continuously doing it. And he's like, nah, I made like five other films between right. that. And I haven't done that since. Have you seen R.I.P.D.? I, oh. I have not. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, 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 I hard you. passed on that. Surprisingly, considering Jeff Bridges is like the mainstay in it. And I was like, oh, I, I'll definitely go see that. And then I heard the reviews and I was like, maybe I'll pass on that. <laughs> I think I reviewed R.I.P.D. for the film stage many years ago. Damn. Mm. Um, but it's one a real thing, flashback let, episode for us, really. I know, right? We're just going down the rabbit hole. One thing uh, about uh, Bad Times at the El Royale that I just want to mention is it is shot by one of my favorite cinematographers, Seamus McGarvey. Yeah. Who I feel like, though he has done so much great stuff and he's been around for a while and makes movies like Fifty Shades of Grey, you, right? Also with Dakota Johnson, look beautiful, right? And say what you will about that movie, but if you watch that movie, there are some shots in that film that are beautiful, right? This guy has, he, he's shot the Avengers. He shot obviously this movie, 50 shades, a, a myriad of other different Don't forget genres. all his Joe Wright films. 
No, right. Atonement obviously being a, you know, like an amazing uh, example. But my point is simply he can kind of do anything. And I think it's almost like that thing of if you're not an auteur, you know, like you kind of sometimes get forgotten. This guy can do and light and shoot any sort of movie and they always look beautiful. And I think, you know, uh, Drew Goddard having him, it's such a win because the movie really looks beautiful. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, for, first of all, I just like Seamus McGarvey is one of those, those directors of photography that we don't talk about enough. He's done bad times of the El Royale, the greatest showman, uh, life, the nosedive episode of black mirror, the accountant nocturnal animals. Uh, he did pan, which is a movie that I love that no one else likes 50 shades of gray Godzilla, he did Anna Karenina, which is great. He did The Avengers, which isn't that great, but I blame that more on the director. We need to talk about Kevin. He did um, <laughs> Atonement, World Trade Center. He did The Hours. I mean, High Fidelity. My God. I mean, this guy is great. Yeah. Also, a movie that if you've seen it, you've only seen it once. The War Zone. Right, right. The War Zone's underrated. Yeah, I mean, he, he like Anna Karenina, to your point, might be one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Right. Absolutely. And regardless, oh regardless God. of what you think, I think it's kind of a masterpiece. Insanity. Of, oh, oh, I just was no, expecting no, no. you to say no, something I know, negative. I know. I know, no, 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 no. I know you don't love that movie, but no. I'm saying, I, oh my God, are you kidding? I fucking love Anna Karenina. That's like okay, top good. of the decade for me. So look, Brian, look what's happening right now. We're becoming <laughs> best friends. on podcast. <laughs> I, I'll be in DC for a shoot in November. Let's hang out. Fantastic. I will now. buy you a beer. <laughs> but but um yeah like Anna Karenina secret sneaky masterpiece is one of the most beautiful movies ever made in terms of you know visual look and aesthetic and yeah like this is a guy who should have kind of this in my opinion deacons like reverence and uh, I'm kind of waiting for us to to like as a, as a whole to kind of accept that yeah, it's crazy people, that he's people not. People need to fucking see his movies because this movie did not do that well. So that's but I mean, the Avengers. Yeah. I mean, he's... sure, <laughs> sure, but but just as you you mentioned, a lot of people don't mention Avengers as far as like cinematography. Yeah, because I feel like yeah, that was shot. That film like, is washed out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. But I mean, I don't know. It's weird because like people who who talk about his movies like will say. Oh, the cinematography is great. Like I remember people saying that about things like Fifty Shades of Grey, Godzilla, um, Nocturnal Animals. Godzilla but for, for some sure. reason, yeah. they they never follow it up by saying his goddamn name. Sure. Yeah. Because he's not Deacons. Because he's not Lubezki. You know. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. kind of the same problem with Matthew Libatique. I feel like we don't talk about him enough. But luckily, oh, sure. you know, he had. Quickly- yeah, he had let's two movies quickly, last weekend. Well, that's what I was, you told it. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, talk about diversity. My man shot a Stars Born and Venom, <laughs> and they both are monster hits. God bless Matthew Liberty. Yeah. He makes that movie Cowboys and Aliens, which is not strong, look amazing. If you ever want to go back, there are like it, John, it does look pretty good. There are like John yeah. Ford, like you know, beautiful setups in that movie, and it's mm-hmm. in this like turgid you know uh blockbuster you know within it is are these beautiful setups so yeah totally i agree with you about matthew libatique i mean matthew libatique is the reason that i almost went and saw the circle in theaters because like i heard nothing but bad things about that movie and it looked like you know a kind of luddite being afraid of like a possible future that's actually already happening but like it just looked so good Hmm. all right Uh, yeah anyway back to bad times (laughs) 
And this film had a $32 million production budget. Mm-hmm. And so far, worldwide, it's made $12 million. That's, uh, I don't know if it's going to be able to to climb out of that hole. I don't know. But you know what, though? I almost, this is going to sound a little silly. I'm going to say that up front. But it's almost one of those things. This movie feels ripe for, and almost engineered for the thing of, it doesn't do that well and then becomes this cult classic in like five years. And almost sure. if it did well now, it would almost sabotage it for being the cool thing that the 17-year-old kid or the 15-year-old kid or the 13-year-old kid shows his friends or her friends in, you know what I mean, in like yeah. 10 years. Sure. I feel like, you know, obviously everybody who makes a movie wants a million, billion people to see it. So that's not, you know, it's a small consolation prize. But I, I, I do think there's a world where this can age very nicely. And I think Goddard is the type of guy who – it makes sense, right? I mean I feel like there's a genre aware awareness to him that makes sense for this to kind of live on forever and ever. Sure. And I, I think honestly he may have gotten this – from what I understand – what what was it? Um Something else had to happen for him to actually make the, uh, bad times, and it was it was like contractually he wanted it as part of it. But the other thing is, is that uh, the Martian made so much fucking money, six hundred thirty million dollars off of a hundred and eight million dollar production, that he probably just went to Fox and was like, "Hey, can can I can I make this little thirty two million dollar?" And they were like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." You know, like like it's a gamble. Sure, to make a rated R film that's original property, right, that only really has his name attached to it as far as, like, writing and directing credits. Um, and so, you know, they they stack the deck with awesome actors, and that's how you try and make movie or money out of some of these films besides just being good. And I guess it, it just – it ran into Venom and fucking A Star is Born. Like, that's that's tough. I guess. Who knew, but I mean, who knew Venom was going to fucking make money? Venom <laughs> powerhouse of the early fall. Um, my whole thing is like, you know, and this actually segues into something else that I want to talk about before we get into spoilers. I mean, like, you know, uh, so none of these actors are, are big. Like, they're names, yeah. but they're not really yeah. draws. And so yeah, like, John, like John Hamm's like a, a, a fairly well-known actor, but like nobody fucking watched Mad Men anyway. So it's like, he's not a draw. You right. Know? I mean, he's, he's, and you know, he's been in big movies. He was in bridesmaids, but like, you know, he's, he's not himself a draw. And like Chris Hemsworth, I don't think has had like a hit outside of like the Marvel films really. And like mm-hmm. Jeff Bridges will bring in some people obviously, but like, you know, Dakota Johnson, was not the reason people went and saw Fifty Shades of Grey. And, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, I, I'm happy that a movie like this is still getting made. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, they spent so little on the production. I think they're probably going to make their money back just by, you know, its theatrical run will probably bring it close to its total. And then I think it'll have a healthy life on, like, VOD and 
and all that other stuff. Oh, oh for sure. Th- this and, is definitely something that someone would be looking through online, you know, a rental or whatever, and it'll be 99 cents and they'll be like, look at that cast. Like, yeah, yeah oh my God. Let's, let's watch it. You know, it'll, yeah, I have friends who do that all the time. Like I, I because I go to all movies and I speak <laughs> almost <laughs> exclusively on here with people who go to all movies. It's always funny to me when like a friend will talk to me six months later and be like, so yeah, my uh, girlfriend and I were looking on iTunes and uh, we, we, we watched that uh, Bad Times of the El Royale. And I'd be like, oh my God, what the shit? Why didn't you go see it in theaters? Like, well, you know, we were busy, but we saw it and we read it. It was really good. Yeah. Yep. And, and I'll just something- like be furiously angry with them. <laughs> Yeah, that's something I always kind of talk about, uh, you know, with my wife or other friends of mine where there is this weird thing where film, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, sometimes, not sometimes, most of the time, kind of oversimplifies or narrows anticipation where it's like I had friends, right, who are not working in the industry or involved or what have you asking me about Venom, right? So you're like, okay. There are people who are not, you know, on this weird one part of the Twitter world who are acting like Venom is this like prearranged flop that Mm want to see Venom. So then when Venom grosses the amount it grosses, you're like, it's not that surprising, right? Like there is still that weird disconnect of there are, you know, the the public sometimes (laughs) is interested in a movie (laughs) that maybe in a certain sector of, of, of this criticism filmmaking world we're not as excited for. Right. And like same, same goes with the stars born, you know, which obviously kind of hit on both, on both sides. So it's true. It's funny when it's like, you can tell that something's being discounted or even like, you know, Nicholas Cage gave an interview where he talked about with the VOD, you know, we make fun of the fact that the dude has like 20 movies that are like straight to VOD. But the reason he has 20 of them is because you know, people in three months later are like, oh, I want to watch that new Nicolas Cage movie. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. like a whole nother little market that exists, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It, and it, it gives these films a second life, even even still steamrolling from the advertising and from all of the kind of pre-production hype that some of these films actually have. Like that still kind of, you know, if they've seen a trailer for it, at a at a movie theater because this trailer has been playing all over um you know they're gonna remember it and then when it comes time they're gonna be like oh yeah hey that looked good we have a tendency to like unless the movie performs extremely well or extremely poorly like not really talk about movies past like their opening weekend Mm -hmm. um and that's a problem especially because like again you know my parents will call me up and say like hey you know we're going to the movies with friends what's good that's out and i'll be like uh you know these two things came out and they're like well we're looking at the listings what about this thing and i'm like oh my god that came out a month ago Mm -hmm. like what are you why would you go see that and they're like well because it still looks good and i'm like right art exists perpetually after it has been put out into the universe and people may still care like about its relative quality maybe we shouldn't be so short-sighted um sure so yeah it's uh and you know I've, i've always been curious about like how many people find this particular podcast by like, for instance, saying to themselves, I just watched cabin in the woods at finally. And I would love to see what people thought of it. Oh, the film stage show did it for their first episode, <laughs> you know? And, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people will say that all the time. They're like, Hey, I finally listened to X cause I saw it. And I'm like, Oh shit. I was like a whole different person when I recorded that. Um, <laughs> it is interesting to think about that though, because 
this movie is sort of like a play on the early 90s or mid 90s to early 2000s like Tarantino ripoffs. Mm-hmm. And like Yeah, but it's it's better than those. Oh my god, it's so much better than those. I'm just saying like it would make a lot of sense for this movie to have a life on DVD the way that a bunch of those did. Like like right, Suicide King. Oh my god, I was yeah, I was just about to say like when I think of Tarantino ripoffs, I think of Suicide Kings. Yeah. A movie that I bought from Record and Tape Traders used on DVD and I still own today. And I'm just like, remember remember all of the people in that movie and how we all thought they were gonna be the next big thing? Like Yeah. I mean was Sean, just- Patrick, Sean Patrick Flannery is in two of those movies, the Boondock Saints and, and Suicide, Suicide Kings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Suicide Kings is one of those ones that if you were to go back and look at it, you're like Oh my God, Christopher Walken, Dennis Leary, Sean Patrick Flannery, Henry Thomas, Jay Moore, Jeremy Sisto, Brad Garrett. Like, it's just, it's one of those things where people read that script and were like, okay, yeah, yeah, it's got that kind of Tarantino patter. It's got like, you know, the the unlikely crime people. Yeah, this could be good. This could be great. There's a whole thing about Stingray boots. (laughs) I'm clicking on it now. I need to know what else that, that director has directed. I don't think much else. The, all those kind of, a lot movies of TV. Came in, yeah, came and went. I mean, so things to do in Denver when you're dead has a, has a kind of a crew behind it that went on to kind of make more things. Uh, the screenwriter wrote Con Air. He's written a bunch of other stuff. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't all dead ends for all those people. Gary Fleeter, who directed Things to Do in Denver, he's made a lot of stuff since. Scott Rosenberg is the writer. So it kind of depends. Uh, but I think this move, I've been hearing a lot of the Tarantino comparisons in regards to bad times. And I think it's a little short sighted. I mean, yeah, obviously you have seven people. There's a reminiscence of Reservoir Dogs and Hateful Eight in terms of the setup, I suppose. But really, it's not a lot like the Tarant. You, you guys feel free to disagree with me. I don't think it's a lot like a Tarantino movie. I, I think know. it only is insofar as it is like this disparate. Like it, it has a Hateful Eight feely vibe, but like that's only one Tarantino movie. But other than that, well, and like the disjointed kind of like. Here's their past, and then here's that scene from another angle. But like, that's just also it's bringing all of those things together. That's kind of, I think, the way that people are are specifically remarking about Tarantino. And you know, it's people say that, and I think some people are going to jump on them saying, "Well, but Tarantino didn't invent it, or whatever." But it's it's just the Apple kind of thing. Like the iPod wasn't the first MP3 player, but if you ask people, like they'll be like, "Oh yeah, it was the iPod, right?" And it's like, no, not really, but you know, they are the ones that popularized it. And Tarantino is the one that everybody can kind of point to and say a lot of what he, or some of what he does, some of what he's known for is having a bunch of different characters have completely different strands of storylines. And then we find how they all smash together. And this film definitely has that smashing together point Mm -hmm. where all of the storylines start to interconnect. And then we, you know, we've, we've seen where this character was doing that this time we've seen what this character was doing at that time. And then all of a sudden, boom, everything's lined up. And then we, go from that point forward and everything's current yeah also i think it's just like an aesthetic thing because like 
you know, Tarantino's films, no matter when they're made, they have kind of like a weird mid-century vibe to them. And then you've got the soundtrack as well. And so I think that like all that in a very like broad, basic surface level way is the type of thing that'll make someone say, oh, yeah, that kind of looks like a Tarantino film. But like in the end, like I think that that's like maybe a hook to get some people through the door, but it's definitely not at all what this movie's actually going for. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. So uh, let's talk spoilers. We've been talking yeah, for like almost an let's hour. Let's jump into it. Yeah, let's do it. One minutes. Spoilers for bad times at the El Royale. There's a lot. There's a lot going it, on. It was, all a, <laughs> it was all a dream. It's so crazy. Haley, they were really in the bad people. place. <laughs> Whoa! <clears throat> I've seen a lot of reviews call this thing like basically purgatory, mm-hmm. and um, I can't figure out how many of them are speaking metaphorically. So Drew Goddard, he, I, that stuff is like, kills me though. Right. I don't know. No. Yeah. No, like Like, whatever. Like it's, it's a, this film doesn't, this film doesn't, doesn't exist along that line. Like it's so simple and straightforward ultimately at the end that it's really not purgatory at all. Or like, like, it speaks to look. This is a tangent, but it kind of goes with what we're saying. It speaks to this larger thing that I'm. I continue to have a problem with, which is like, look, this and what, this is one of the things I like most about this movie. This is a movie. This is a genre picture, right? That's like twenty minutes too long, but that's okay. <laughs> and it's literally like seven bad people, semi bad people. Some are better, some are worse. They're all in a situation. It's a nice construct. And then we watch it play out, right? This is like pretty classic stuff, right? You know what I mean? If you think about, you know, like the noir element of it, right? This is, you know, Kansas City confidential, whatever, right? Like this is pretty normal storytelling, right? And so watching it is enjoyable because studios like Fox don't make these movies anymore, right? So like it's nice to be in a big theater watching a movie like this. And ironically, right, speaking of Seamus McGarvey, I feel like the last time I was on this podcast, we talked about a movie called The Accountant, which mm-hmm. he also shot, which is like kind of a similar thing. There's a high concept nature to the piece, but really it's just an action movie, right? And when you're in a big theater in 2018 or 2015 or whatever, and you're watching it, it's just enjoyable because you don't get it a lot. Right? The Accountant like is a, such a dumb, fun movie. <laughs> that's But that's my point. Like, yeah. I feel like they live in the same world. And so then you get these, like, think pieces because there's a million film websites and it's, like, purgatory and ba ba ba, And it's really, like, there's a reach there that's hard. It gets harder and harder to swallow well, right? like, as, I, like, a film fan. I looked – I was trying to find um, music that was featured in this movie because, like, I could remember a bunch of the songs, but I couldn't remember all of them. And so I, like – was I did the Google of like bad time is at the El Royale soundtrack. And then I was like looking for reviews that may have mentioned some and there there's already stuff out there. That's like the ending of bad times. At the El Royale explained what do you got to explain? What? I don't know. What's the lingering yeah, mystery? There's no, yeah, like what is to be explained here? Did you watch the movie? Okay. Yeah. Enjoy, the, yeah. enjoy the rest of your day. And it's not even like enemy where it's like, well, I have a read on it, but it might be different from yours. And isn't that the joy of movies? This movie is like, I feel like it's done and you should just say like, oh, yeah, the story's over and I understand everything and I know who's alive and who's dead. Yeah. And I mean, I think the one radical, if you want to use that overwrought word and, 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 you know, in this case, the one quote unquote radical thing here in terms of it being a studio release is that it's so 
it's so dark, right? And, you know, when you get into that ending with basically a Russian roulette situation and, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, Drew Goddard is killing off the, you know, the bigger movie stars in the movie. Uh, it, it, there is a braveness to some degree that Fox released the movie wide, um, you know, because of those types of things. But then also... I also, as I say that, I reject it a little bit because these types of movies, though they might have been a bit less dark, were very common only 20 years ago to be released by, sure. a, big, by a big studio. So you kind of – it's that ebb and flow of the industry to some yeah. degree, but it does get super dark at the end. Yeah, it, it gets really dark. I mean let, let's talk a little bit about that darkness. Um, first of all, <laughs> John Hamm gets cut in half by a shotgun. Yep. Yep, and um, the buckshot <laughs> that passes through him hits, yeah. hits Miles that, in the face. That was that was such a creative way to like ex- expose that aspect to those characters at that moment. Yeah, and it was such a shocking moment because you hear someone groan and you're like, "Oh no!" So, someone was watching while that happened. Yeah, and, and also like, oh, now they're hurt. <laughs> and yeah, who was it? Yes. And and it's just like such a great like premise and execution of that and like ex you know just knocking down that door. It's so creative. I was I was really shocked by a that moment, but also b the way that that moment isn't just there to be shocking. It's also there to further the storyline even more so. You know, because right. how um, does that how does that whole sequence go? It goes, um. The girls are in the room, and that's the point of view we're seeing. And then we hear the kind of moaning coming through. And then it cuts to um, Jeff Bridges and mm-hmm. um, Miles, who's played by Lewis Pullman, who every once in a while like gets real Paul Dano-y, I feel like, in his face. And I don't know if that's just because he's like a haunted young man, and that's pretty mm-hmm. much Paul Dano's, like, his wheelhouse. Um but so then we see him and the, the priest and then we find out that Miles is the one who got shot. And then we see all of that again from the point of view of Darlene, who's played by Cynthia Erivo. Mm-hmm. And like that, it's just it's such a well done thing, you know, yeah. it's just it's so good. And like the way everything like twirls together and the way that things are revealed and the way that like we are ahead of certain characters, but then other characters are ahead of us. Like I feel like for some people that might be like the set piece of the movie, but it's just funny to call it a set piece. Cause it's like a massive swath of the narrative real estate of this film encompassing every character and three different points of view. Yeah. And I almost think that to your point, Brian, um, those first 30 minutes or so are so well crafted that I Mm -hmm. do think in a way, and maybe more to Bill's point, it's a detriment ultimately for me uh, to the rest of of the movie where, where in as much as though I enjoyed the whole of it, it's so elevated in that opening and then through the John Hamm sequence when, you know, you basically, we basically learn that John Hamm, he is a kind of a, you know, a racist salesman when we, with a foghorn leghorn like accent at the beginning <laughs> of, of, of the movie when we, when we meet him. And then, but then of course he's an FBI agent and he's running around and he's aware of this hotel and he's discovering things and then he gets blown away all the way through that and then through the reveal of Lewis Pullman, you know, also behind the glass with Dakota Johnson. 
all of that mm-hmm. um, is so great. And then it ne- the movie never in my mind gets to that level again, right? So mm-hmm. you don't want to call it a detriment because it's so impressive, but I do feel like you run into that thing of like – I almost equated it to like – in the sum of all fears, the nuclear bomb goes off in the middle of the movie and it never recovers, right? It's like yeah. sometimes when you make a movie and you do the thing that's the best thing an hour in, it can be the Achilles heel. And I do feel like there's a little bit of that here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a little bit. Um, but then what's weird is so like I feel like after that point is like when – if the movie has done its job right, which to my mind it has, like the characters really like start to like take control, and it's not like the set pieces and the mystery as much as it is as it is like, do you want these people to succeed in whatever they are doing? And so, like on the one hand, you have like the very easy to root for. Um, I I can't remember what his yeah uh father Daniel Flynn slash Doc mm-hmm. O'Kelly, yeah. <laughs> uh, played by Jeff, Jeff- Bridges. That that his storyline is so fucking good. Right, like, and it's crazy because God. you go from like thinking he's kind of weird, like you know, even if you haven't seen the trailer, you're sort of like, I don't think this guy's being straight with me. To seeing him try to either poison or drug a woman, and then she he she hits him with like a wine bottle filled with marbles, and you're just like, yeah, get him, get him, honey. And then you find out his backstory, and you're like, oh, like shit. I guess he didn't deserve that quite so much, but like still a dick move and mm-hmm. she's just great. And so when they like team up, like that whole scene of them in the car is just like so good. Yes. She's like and, ready and to I shoot love, him and I, he's like, all right, look, you have no reason to trust me, but if you yeah. do, you might get a shit ton of money. Yeah. And I'm not and that I, bad. Love, I love, I love how he, he talks her down from that because he also mentions, you know, he plays into kind of the racial racial bit because he's just like, look, you don't want to be a black woman in the woods with a gun. Do you like, that's not going to look good for you. Uh, you know, so all of these situations and I love how they all think that John Hamm is some kind of cop. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> Oh, y'all quickly went from, he's definitely a, a kind of a sleazebag salesman to, he must be a cop, right? Like, well, yeah, you see, you, you see him bust through the door. You know, you see him right. talking like that, and you're just like, yeah, he seems pretty cop-like. Yeah, <laughs> it's like okay. I yeah, guess. and I do think John Hamm has made a like post madman post madman career of almost subverting his own image, right? Where it's like he's this stiff upper lip guy putting on this bad accent, which almost feels like a meta joke of his mm-hmm. own acting ability or whatever, and then mm-hmm. it's like you know, he gets blown away. Right. And I do think, I, you know, I think he's really good in this underrated movie. I think underrated movie, keeping up with the Joneses where he's like a spy. And that movie also does that where it's like, he subverts, like he's a spy with Gal Gadot. And, but then it's like, there's more to his character. And I do feel like he's made this funny little post. Well, he's fucking, un- he's fucking unhinged in, um, in the the car movie um i can't remember the name of it right now uh by uh with the kid that listens to the music all the time oh baby driver baby Driver. yeah yeah he's fucking unhinged in that movie like that's that's, a great performance by him i didn't really like that movie but i enjoyed him in it 
Yeah, I didn't, Brian. I didn't like that movie that much either. Oh my Brian. god, what is that? Are we becoming best friends? Oh my god! But no, but to the point. Should, oh, should I mention I didn't really like that movie either? Oh, classic. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you're just trying to horn in on the love fest, but it's okay. I'm happy to find people who don't like Baby Driver. But but even in that movie, his whole character build, right? He was a banker, right? Which mm-hmm. John Hamm would of course be like a banker, yeah. who then becomes this unhinged psychopath, right? So it's like, uh, point being. I love this this thing he's doing where he's like, instead of becoming Superman, what if I just were in these more interesting movies? And even if I die 45 minutes in, you know, the character's memorably weird. Well, you know what I mean? What's also interesting about John Hamm is that, like, throughout the run of Mad Men, we see him, like, lie and cheat and fuck people over. And I feel like he instinctively knows that we will never trust him. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. in Bridemaids, he's kind of like a callous dick who like is is like pretty much what Don Draper without like the smoothness would be. He's just like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm hot, you know, you know women want to sleep with me and I'm just going to like coast on that. Whereas Don Draper was like coolly smoking a cigarette and letting them come to him. And then in this movie, he begins, you know, in that same in that same kind of like early Don Draper before he was really even Don Draper kind of like Dick Whitman earnestness and mm-hmm. you're just like I don't know I don't fucking trust this guy and then the accent is gone and he's pulling out his kit and you're like oh, I knew it this guy's shady as shit but then he's like saying prayers on the phone with his daughter and you're like oh yeah. double reversal he's just a nice guy but he works for the government mm-hmm. and that's great I mean like every everyone in this movie is great I want to we haven't talked about her but Kaylee Spaney as Rose Summerspring, okay. the yeah. younger daughter of Dakota Johnson, is excellent casting there. Well, not daughter, right? Sister. Oh yeah, the younger sister. sister. I'm sorry, sister. my mistake. Yeah. Um, the younger sister of Dakota Johnson is chilling. Also, you were right, Bill. Very good casting, <laughs> because when we were first introduced to her on a beach, I sort of thought that she was Dakota Johnson as yeah. a younger oh, person. I, I totally thought it was Dakota Johnson. Yeah, yeah, I That's did like, too almost too good of casting like dye her hair blonde or something like make her different Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but um and also another reason people are talking about tarantino with this movie is because the next movie tarantino's making is 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 in the world of charles manson with squeaky who this character is obviously modeled on squeaky from Mm -hmm. you know from the uh manson murders which right and i was you know, I like it, sometimes it's hard for me to say like wh- how much of it is just me and my moral compass as it always has been and how much is like me is now the father of a daughter. But like every scene of her and like seeing her like devotion to Chris Hemsworth's Billy Lee character just like made my fucking skin crawl. And I was very concerned for this young girl through the whole movie because I was like, I don't care there's, I, maybe it was just like the hopeful part of me. I was like, there's no way that he's getting out scot-free. Like he's got to die. At least one of our main characters is going to live. I hope it's, I hope it's Darlene. And, you know, I, I was just like, but what are we going to do about this little girl? Cause like, she's not going to happily ride into the sunset with someone else. And it and is also fucked up, <laughs> deeply upsetting. Like what happens? Like, you know, she, <laughs> miles, so, uh, damn it, there's so much I want to talk about, and I don't know how to get to each part. Anyway, the, the thing that she does to Miles is horrific, and then, you know, Jeff Bridges having to shoot her is, like, equally as horrific. Like, it, but there's just, like, at that point, there's no good options. Like, 
and it's just let's, so uh, hard to go through. Like, it's, let, let's, yeah, sorry. Um, let's let's I, touch on some of. Oh, go, you, well, I was going to say. Well, Brian mentioned him, so let's introduce this important part of the movie, and I will introduce it by saying this is my theory as to why I think this movie is two hours and twenty minutes long. Yes, I think that Drew Goddard fell in love with Chris Hemsworth playing Billy Lee as this like super handsome Charles Manson character and kept every piece of footage they filmed in the movie. So Mm -hmm. he's introduced way late in the movie, but then there's this like flashback to how the sisters got involved with him that I really think if you cut out, I don't know that it would really hurt the movie that much. Brian, probably you disagree, I would imagine. Are you talking about like the fire scene? Yes. Okay, no, I think that that is actually weirdly important to the movie. Okay, tell me why. Okay, because he does this whole thing where he's like, you know, I'm going to tell these two girls to fight each other. And it's like, oh, but they don't want to. You know, they can. I can already see them like coming up with reasons not to. So I'm going to like incentivize them to. And, he, and this is a part where like my skin crawled. He's like, whoever like wins the fight gets to sleep with me in my cabin tonight. And I don't know how old Rose is supposed to be, but I'm going to say like maybe 13. And she like goes at this other girl with like a force and fury that is just disturbing to me. And, and then he says like, you know, while they're fighting, while I've got them fighting each other, I'm going to go and like take their stuff. And like, you know, I like, you know, they, they tell you this is good. This is evil. You know, you have to make a choice. And like, what if I told you, you don't have to make a choice that like, this is all. And then we, and then his hypocrisy comes later when he has these people tied to a chair and is literally making them choose black or red as he spins a roulette wheel to like murder one of them. And the, the women that he, he does this with, like he, he basically, what is it? Dakota Johnson, you know, tries not to at first and then does, and then is killed. And then, you know, Darlene also is like trying not to. And, um, it's just like this. And she, she has that whole speech about the person on the film was just some man who liked to hear himself talk and talk so much that maybe he even believed what he was saying. But in reality, all he wanted was to fuck whoever he wanted to fuck. Like, sure. It, it's weird that they introduced the character so late, but I think that a lot of what the movie is saying thematically ties into that. And so it is, it's one of those things where I'm like, but you know, how do you like, how do you introduce him earlier without, really fucking up the flow of the movie and the mystery, but also how do you remove any of that without the movie turning into just a a fun time with bad times at the El Royale and not a movie that seems to like have some stuff on its mind. But I think that Cynthia Revo speech still would be effective in that. Like really what that sequence does is it tells us that he's a charismatic, uh, cult leader, easy done like all i need to know is this girl clearly does not need to be involved with him it's already been established in the flashback that her sister is trying to get her out of there right she's been brainwashed Mm -hmm. she's probably high on drugs that's what she's coming off of right and so it's like boom boom done like i already knew everything i needed to know about billy lee before that flashback even happened and so and maybe that's just because 
I don't want to give myself too much credit here, but you know, like I'm good, I'm a good movie watcher. And so I already put those pieces together. Maybe for some bad movie watchers, they need that kind of explained out. But I think that film, that sequence specifically loses so much momentum in, in where it is folded in. And I think, I think Brian, you're right. I think it still has some kind of cinematic ultimate, like, reason for it to be there but i think it it happens in a bad in a bad place at a bad time um and it kills a lot of the momentum but there's no other place to introduce it and so instead of cutting it it's kind of like what mecca's saying and he was just like nah fuck it like i love this character i just i just want to keep everything that we have from him and it's just like Mm, I think you lose that character. I don't. I don't need his backstory, and I don't need really hers because she's a tragic character already, and that's enough for me to know. Well, not and, lose that character, but lose that scene. Yeah, lose that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, I, I feel that, but like, I, that. I just, I like, I like the 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 bigger explication of like like I said, his hypocrisy and like, you know, he's in this idyllic environment that he's in complete control of. And he's like, you know, no good, no bad, like free love. Let's do all this. But then of course you, you, you threaten that power even nominally. And he suddenly makes himself into, you know, the person demanding a choice be made. Sure. And Which then again, I think it, it's, it's thematic. It's, it's, it, it adds a bit to the narrative and it, it lengthens things out. But like, I, I was still down for that. But I can totally see that as a as a knock that people would make against it. One weird narrative choice the movie makes that I I'm still wrestling with, especially in regards to what you're talking about, Brian, is they go through all this specifically Cynthia Revo and um, uh, Jeff Bridges' characters. They make it out, you know, the whole place burns down, everybody else is dead, what have you, and there is this piece of film that is introduced about halfway through the movie. That is implied to be JFK having sex with somebody and whatnot, you know. And um, yeah, I was trying to. Is it? We're, I mean, like, it seems like it could be JFK, but then at the same time, it like, you know, they, basically the only things we have are a man who is dead by like 1970. Well, see, this is I. I took it to be JFK because right, he got killed in '63. It's the year '69. The hotel hasn't been popular for a couple of years, and by '69, his legend as this progressive hero had only ex, you know, mm-hmm. increased exponentially. Mm-hmm. And also he's, a, because, he's a white man that likes to talk. Well, and also because we walked on the moon, right? Did and we define him as being white? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I don't think she says white. Because I, think I was thinking, like, man. could be JFK, could be RFK. But then I was like, what are the eyes of this movie is, like, going to say something about Martin Luther King? Well, but see, I don't know. I think it's a strategic choice no, because I, I I thought she says you're you're just another white man that w- likes to talk a lot, but really just wants to fuck, right? She, I don't I think she brought she up said, race, but I I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I would like yeah, to see this movie again. So if it is true, I will issue a retraction. Well, but regardless, whoever this politician is, yeah. I took it to be, I took it to be JFK, but it doesn't really matter. My point was simply. I think it's a weird character choice at the end of the movie that Jeff Bridges and Cynthia Revo's characters decide to let the film burn. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to do this whole movie and this idea is that, you know, obviously this is – and this kind of brings me back to my initial point. Drew Goddard obviously thinks this is a treatise on America and a 
did a, maybe perhaps a loftier, more important movie than maybe I think it may be, right? But Brian, perhaps you think it is to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if that's like our critical difference, you know, I think if we're meant to think this movie is important, then wouldn't those two characters keep the film? Why would they let the film burn? Like, if this is meant to be a treatise on America and the hypocrisy of our country, then why would those two disenchanted characters let that film choose to burn that film for the future and and the concealment of, you know, and, and, you know, the perpetuations of these legends? It's interesting because, you know, not only do they let that film burn, but he, you know, father Daniel Flynn reaffirms that false identity to a dying young man who wants to confess. So, I don't think I think that there is a cynicism to this, but I feel like the people who are the most cynical are the ones who pay for it. If that makes any sense, like you yeah. know, the, like That's, John Hamm's character sense. is working for the man, and um, even though he has you know good intentions, you know he he disobeys orders and stuff and tries to save that girl, but then is killed. And um, oh shit, the other person I was going to talk about, uh, Dakota Johnson, is is like not willing to like seek help and is like, you know, threatening miles and all this. And, and she, you know, is killed and like, she thinks she has to do everything on her own, but the people who team up are the people who make it. And the people who offer hope and absolution are the people who receive it. So like Mm -hmm. my favorite scene in the movie, you know, it's, you know, miles through the whole movie has been this like slacker idiot, you know, really wants to talk to a priest. And we figure it's just like talking about his, his heroin habit. And then we find out all the bullshit that he's had to deal with being, being an employee at this hotel, including a weirdly Cormac McCarthy esque moment where he talks about watching a man lie with a wolf. Yeah. That was like, weird. I don't know if, I don't know if anyone's read the crossing, but like, as he describes like this person bringing a wolf in, tying it to the bed and then like laying down with it, I was just like, what a strange detail. So bizarre. And so you think that it's just like that he is tortured by like this dumb life that he's chosen and his like poor choice of drug. And then there's the gun there. And Darlene, who's still tied up, is like, you know, Miles, like, get the gun, like, get the gun. And he's just like, I can't, I can't, I can't kill, I can't kill any more people. And there's this weird moment when I was like, whoa, Miles, what the hell else have you been doing in this hotel? And Darlene says, like, Miles, how many people have you killed? Yep. And he just like a thousand yard stare says 123. And it was just like mind explosion. Like, what the fuck? Is he a serial killer? Is that why he's here? And then instead, it's that he was in the military and he has PTSD and is like getting high just to like get away from his own shit and i was just like that's so fucking great because now all of his weird sketchy behavior is put again into a much more sympathetic light and when she tells him like it's okay like you know you don't have to kill any more people like that moment of like understanding and forgiveness is enough to like make him realize that she is a light worth keeping from being snuffed and he picks up that gun (laughs) And just fucking goes for it. And it's like a really well shot scene. And I find it like just really great, like how good he is at shooting. Um, mm-hmm. 
but also there's just like so much meaning behind it, especially in the way that he then goes up and tries to comfort this young girl and, and she fucking stabs him. Sure. Yeah. I, I yeah. That's, so that's, I hope that answers your question. No, that's a good answer. That's a really good answer. You're right. Think, Brian, this movie's a masterpiece. I totally changed my opinion. Boom. This is the movie we need right now in Trump's America. I think, I think the only issue I have with that is it gives me too much of his backstory to the point where I was like, I need to get back to this moment in the movie that's super dramatic and you've just broken away from it. And it's a critical moment in that movie. And we get that flashback, that flashback. And I think either a, you need to shorten that just a tad or you just have him still wearing his dog tags and then they find that later and boom, explanation made. He was in the military. No, I, he I killed think, a bunch of people there. Mm, no, like, I, I, I like having I like that breath because at first I was like, this is absurd. It says the maintenance closet. But then it showed him like there and it showed like everything that he'd been through. And I was like, OK, that I feel it was like the shortest flashback that there was. And I just feel like it really, it really did its job. I, I feel like it was in and out fast enough for me, at least, to like feel like it was a, a good pause before like jumping back in. And it, it gave you the insight necessary to see how much her words of "you don't have to kill anymore" meant to him, because like you, you see him stop in the middle of like a war scene, and his commanding officer is like, "What are you doing? Keep shooting!" And he does, like. Mm-hmm. And so to to hear the opposite of a white, you know, man screaming at you to kill people who you've never met and to like have this woman, you know, this woman of color grant you atonement for not like springing into action to save these people who you sort of know but don't really know. It's um it was powerful for me. I really liked it. Totally. Yeah, it, it's it's a good that's a good take. 100%. Mm-hmm. Brian Rowan takes hot, but also good. S- scolding hot Rowan take. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think now that now that I've finally been able to give my Miles take and all that. I f- I'm wondering what else I need to say about this movie. I feel like I've got oh, it. I, this is my last thing I'm going to say. Dakota Johnson, movie star, love her. I really right. do. I think she's got whatever it is. Right, daughter of Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith. She she's got whatever that thing is that is a movie star needs, I, you know, whatever it is. Right. Like it's, it's just presence. It's, it's yeah. just, there's just something about when like she shows up in this film and it's it's just gangbusters when she busts in that door and right. John Hamm's just like after you, <laughs> you're just like, yep. <laughs> Yeah, her, her, yeah. her and Cynthia Revo, I think both when you watch this, obviously Dakota Johnson's has a bit has had a bit more, you know, uh, mileage in in Hollywood uh, right. to some degree. But these two young women are like just you watch this movie and you go, this is the next 10 years. You know, th- you know, if there is any God, any Hollywood God, they will be crushing roles you know, for the next decade plus. Well, Dakota Johnson was, you know, funny in 21 Jump Street, but actually where, where she first popped for me was, um, on the Fox television show, Ben and Kate. Yeah. Did anyone anyone watch that? Yeah. That show. Good show. That didn't last, but not last her and Nat Faxon. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, I I really liked that show. I was sad when it when it didn't work, and so I was like, oh man, I'm never gonna see her again. And then like, she's been working her way up. You know, she did her Fifty Shades of Grey. She was in Black Mass, which oh god. Um, and now uh, Luca Guadagnino seems to have glommed onto her, which is not great news for me. <laughs> but I'm uh, still looking forward to seeing what she can do. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And then like I said, you know, I um <laughs> I saw. I, I, you know, I was reading like up on this movie before I saw it and I was like, uh, Cynthia Erivo, I don't think I know her. And then I saw the trailer for Widows right before this movie and I saw her name and I was like, oh shit. Awesome. So she's in at least two movies with fantastic trailers that I really want to see. I guess I'll have to see how she is as an actress. And then after I saw her in this, I'm like so happy that I don't have to wait that long for her next her next thing. It's just like when Lupita Nyong'o in- was in 12 Years a Slave and then nonstop. You know, it's just always good when you know that something's coming down the pike. And Cynthia Revo is in the Harriet Tubman movie that they're prepping to shoot. Yeah, I, awesome. I saw that when I clicked on her earlier. Um, I'm, I, I'm interested. I didn't even I don't think I even realized that there was a Harriet Tubman movie. And that's one of those things when I saw it. And I was just like, well, it's about fucking time, isn't it? Yeah. How is it possible? It's 2018 and, and we have not gotten the quintessential Harry Tubman movie. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's, it's one of those things like, you know, it's it's the it's I don't know. I don't I don't know what it is about like this country or like how we view things like this. But like, you know, like uh, if when I was a kid, you know, you'd hear about people in in history class. And then like when your history teacher was hung over and a substitute had to come in, you'd see a movie about them. And it was just like, mm-hmm. I kept as a child waiting for the Harriet Tubman movie because <laughs> I was like, that's like made for this history class, right? And it just kept not happening. Yeah, it's know? unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. I'm happy it's happening. They have a good team behind it. I can't wait. Yeah. Uh, Casey Lemons. Cassie? Casey? Yeah, Cassie Lemons. She made a movie in the late 90s called Eve's Bayou. Yeah. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's a crime to the world that not enough people have seen it. That movie, Seek It Out, she plays Jodie Foster's uh, best friend uh, in Science of the Lambs. That's what's kind of, people saw her, she was an actress, and then she made this movie, Eve's Bayou. Uh, really great, another lesser seen, lesser movie, but also kind of good movie called The Caveman Valentine. Oh, Samuel L. Jackson in that yeah. too. And yeah, she The also Caveman's made- Valentine, is one of those, uh, Valentine is one of those movies that like I have meant to see for like almost 20 it's years. It's a little messy and whatnot, I, but I think it's a great Sam Jackson performance. And then she also made that movie, Talk, Talk to, to Me, me. with Joe yep. uh, and uh, and uh, and Don Cheadle, which is also good. So she's classic female filmmaker, like totally great. And of course, like she makes movies that only a few people see and the world decides, you know, that's a critique on her, you know, where she's actually great. And so I'm happy that she's back and she's giving us this movie. So it's going to be good. Yeah. Talk to me is a great movie. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about Harriet. Um, this movie was great, great showcase for everyone involved. Um, I don't know the, by one thing though, is like, I just wonder what's gonna, what's gonna be the next thing that utilizes, um, oh, what was her name? The woman who played the young girl, uh, Kaylee Spaney. Cause, uh, she was really good in this, but I don't know. I don't know. I was, uh, I was very disturbed by her. <laughs> so <laughs> like I, when I remember seeing Pete's dragon and, um, just being like, oh my god, like the, those kids are gonna have careers. Like everything is great. What was it, Oaks Fagley and Una Lawrence? Just like gonna mm-hmm. follow them forever. But this one, I'm like, I don't know, man. I might just be too disturbed. 
Yeah, it's a it's an effective performance to say the least. Yeah, it is super effective. Um, so yeah, that's that. Um, any final thoughts from any of us on bad times at the El Royale? Bill, was I able to convince you that this is in fact a perfect flawless movie that should be on everyone's top ten? No, <laughs> but I will say this: I'm I'm coming out of this discussion much much higher. Uh, I would definitely recommend this much. <laughs> oh, so you're a full yes now. All right. Yes. Yeah. I'm a full on. Yes. Go see this. Cause it is one of those things where like, mind. I can see people who like, aren't quite jibing with it on the level. And we're just hoping for a good time being like, all right, you're overstaying. You're welcome. But I feel like, I think, I think really, honestly, I think if you remove the Billy Lee flashback, I think it smooths out the rest of the film and I, it isn't as jarring when they do the final miles flashback. And I'm not so much against this film. I think just the double nature of those two things and me feeling like I didn't need either of them. Really. I felt like just the economy of storytelling there was lost where that first, you know, like Mecca was saying, like that first 30 minutes is just so fucking good and just hit so easy and everything smooth and I have no quibbles with any of it. And then the final kind of 20 minutes happen, and I'm like, ooh, flashback here? Why? And then, <laughs> ooh, flashback again? Are you fucking kidding me? Right before the big like set piece? And I'm like, ah, what the fuck is this movie doing? So, you know, I think I think you get rid of the Billy Lee, which really for me was kind of I agree with you, Brian. I think some of that absolution works for the Miles character, and you kind of have to see it played out in some of those war scenes. I still think you can smash some of that stuff down just a tad, Mm -hmm. but I think if you get rid of the Billy Lee stuff, I think this movie smooths kind of into the finish versus just hitting those two rocky patches right Yeah, like maybe if they like took away the walking through the field part for Billy Lee, you know? (laughs) <laughs> but then you don't get Chris Hemsworth that. like shirtless walking through a field, you know. And it, it, look, there's plenty that. of hips. There's plenty of hips on display inside the hotel. You don't need anything else. Him dancing to uh, "Hush" by Deep Purple. I was mm-hmm. just like, all right, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> that is one of the best beats in the movie when uh, Cynthia Rigo's like, I think this is Deep Purple, and Jeff Bridges just goes. Not for me. Not for me. (laughs) I love how like they play up his complete and utter lack of like knowledge of pop culture from the last 10 years because he's been in jail. Um, So it's good. Yeah. Um, So yeah, big fan of this movie. Everyone here is now a solid recommend though. You know, your, your thoughts about the pacing may change. If you have seen the movie and you have thoughts, remember you can email us podcastfilmstage.com or reach out via Twitter uh, at filmstage show. That is it for today. So let's uh, wrap it up and say goodbye. Um, next week, we're probably talking about Halloween, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I, guess I think that's, that's probably going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's probably um, going to happen. So look forward to that. Or we could talk about the Apostle, you know. Oh, that's true. We could do that. Well, we'll figure it out. Anyway, yeah. uh, between now and then, uh, make sure to check out Mubi, where they have great films streaming all the time. And again, for a free 30-day trial, all you got to do is go to MU bi.com slash film stage remember it is horrific october but also they've got the new york film festival's projections where they give you some great takes takes they give you some great films from the new york film festival and they also have their main in america series the cinema of kevin jerome everson so check that out 
All you got to do, once again, is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. In addition, go to patreon.com slash show and give us your money. Now, gentlemen, let's tell the fine <laughs> folks where we can be found between now and next week. Dan Mecca. You can new find best friend me. Dan Mecca. <laughs> yeah, new best friend Brian Ron. <laughs> you can find me on uh, the film stage, of course. I have a couple upcoming pieces that I'm actually working on right now, so look for those in the near future. Also, I run the B Side Podcast, which is a spinoff of this podcast. We're covering Jamie Lee Curtis uh, in uh, in anticipation of the Halloween movie coming out. Uh, Good so synergy. look for that in a couple of weeks. Just recorded it literally hours ago and then yeah twitter i'm at dj mecca um Damn, no sound effect brian I know. I know i keep forgetting that's it man happy to be here and now my new best friend brian and i are going to just rewatch bad times at the el royale the best movie ever made over and over again we're just gonna we're gonna start our own podcast it's gonna be uh one bad minute time at a time at the El Royale. I was going to see I was going to say it was we were called Bad Times with Brian and Dan, but Oh, whatever. even better. <laughs> I want it to be a minute by minute podcast only about Bad Times at the El Royale. Okay, you sold me. Let's Have you it. ever listened to one of those minute by minute podcasts by the I way? I really I really want to because I think they did one on either Alien or Aliens and I'm like, "Ooh, I I I'd be down for that." I have I I imagine it gets insufferable. But um I had a friend Ooh. once who was like they, they they apparently changed the guests all the time because otherwise it would just be complete and utter madness. Yeah. And so I think How do you choose a guest though? You call them up and it's like, Do you want minute fifty three to fifty four of aliens? <laughs> and it's like, Oh yeah, my favorite minute. There's so much for me to talk about. <laughs> I mean, I guess so, but I think I think that's kind of that's the sweet spot because if you have the same three hosts, it would just get extremely maddening. And so the fact that like you're bringing in someone else to kind of talk about the film overall and then about that specific movie, have you ever for a minute? I think gives it a little bit more freshness. It's so. like the um, what is that podcast? The worst idea of all time podcast. Oh, are you talking about the one where they rewatch Grown Ups over yeah. and over and over? Yeah. <laughs> Every week <laughs> for a year. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Uh -huh. I had a friend once who said what we should do is we should have a spoof of those minute by minute things and make it like a Terrence Malick movie. <laughs> just because like it's just like it's hard enough to talk about it when you've got the whole movie. But like, oh, yeah, you know, this is uh, the minute. I want to see I want to see a minute long shot of like the sky with like a seagull passing and you just have to fill an hour. Just like to remind everyone podcast. of what happened in this minute. Uh, a butterfly landed on um, <laughs> Jessica Chastain's hand and children ran through a street with sparklers. Let's talk uh -huh. about it. Um yeah, so that'll never happen. My other idea for that, though, is last year at Marion Bed. One day. Anyway, Bill Graham, where can we find you between now and the next podcast? Uh, you can definitely find me not watching Last Day at Marion Bed. Um, that movie's way too long. Um, is it a long movie? You can find me. What? How long is That's Last Year at Marion Bed? It's not long. It's slow, Bill. Oh, okay. Well. Whatever. Either one. I don't like either of those things. None of those things appeal to me. It's only an hour and 33 minutes. Oh, shit. Well, now you have to watch it. Yeah. All right. Well, whatever. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, you can find me on the Slack channel 
having a lot of fun over there still. Um, there's there's a shit ton of movies that are coming out in the next few months. So yeah, uh, strap in because hopefully hopefully we get to some more of these. I hope we can continue to kind of knock off some of these double episodes and stuff. This now that I fun. am a uh, guild recognized critic and getting screeners, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we'll even go back and talk about some of the ones we missed, like American Animals. Oh. Was that a good ooh or a bad ooh? Which one was American Animals? The one about the heist. It doesn't matter. Anyway, my uh, name is Brian. Oh, yeah, that looked good. It was. It was good. I got a screener for it. It was great. Um, I'm gloating about screeners. What was I going to say? I can be found on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. My personal site is both brianjrowan.com and dearfilm.net. Of course, you can find my writing and all of these 315 podcasts beginning with Cabin in the Woods and coming up now to Bad Times of the Royale over at thefilmstage.com. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. 